Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Please Watch This, where two film-loving mates with gaps in their viewing history recommend films to one another so they can once and for all answer that question, who has better taste? Very excited this week uh, to talk about one of my favourite films. I'm Sam Blakely. I'm joined as always by Hugh Dempsey. Hugh, how are you? Hello. Hi, Sam. I'm all right. Thank you. How are you? <sighs> I'm, I feel great. We are going to talk about one of my favourite films. I'm sat here with a bottle of water, a cup of tea and a bottle of beer. I'm like a dog with three dicks. <laughs> right, well, I mean, let's see if we can uh, plug some oil. Derek's for you then. <laughs> mixing metaphors. No, um, you, you nailed it first time. So, Hugh, the film we're looking at today is There Will Be Blood. Um, you'd never seen it before. I'd never... I, I, I'd seen it. I love it. Is there a reason why you'd never seen it before? Um, as I said to you, if you remember from last week's conversation, uh, from last episode... I had seen the first maybe 15 or 20 minutes of the film and then, had, for whatever reason, stopped watching it and then never got back to it. Um, was it something to do with the fact that there was literally zero dialogue in that I in that time? think it had something to do with it. And I remember, and this, I d- this, at this point, I did make a note. I think it's about 14 minutes without any dialogue. That's right. In fact, there is one word uttered, though it wasn't scripted. Do you know what the word was? I mean, we're not on the quiz part yet, so I think I'll have to keep my powder dry. Uh, no, I don't. I, um, is it in the? Is it when they're in the the um, the silver and gold office? No, oh. it's actually when when Daniel falls and breaks his leg. He says no. Ah, right. So nice. yeah, that bit of trivia uh, to kick us off into the stratosphere for new listeners. Um, the way the show works is one of us, the host in this case, um, has seen a film, they loved it, the other person feels guilty for never having seen it, <laughs> and we, we both watch it, we talk, we talk, you know, till the cows come home about it. Yeah, I mean, I, I haven't seen any cows outside my house recently when we've been talking about films, but um, <laughs> I assume they're making their journeys with the length of time. Nin- ninja, cows. N- ninja cows. Ninja yeah, cows. Japanese cows, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're on I mean, shaky ground already. This is a I mean, new record, two minutes in. I mean, what? I mean, you just assume, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm joking. I'm also, I'm also, another reason why I'm excited, Hugh, this is our 10th episode. We've made it to double figures. Most podcasts go, don't go past episode seven. Right, well, let's hope we make it to episode 11. Uh, well, jinx it now. Yeah, oh, that's awkward. I was enjoying doing this. Oh, well. <laughs> well, well, listeners, this is our last episode. <laughs> it's been a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. Um, Go out strong. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so Sam, why don't you start us off and tell us what you like about this film and why you would recommend it to me and ultimately why I, you think I would like it. Well, this film, as we mentioned last week, is by my favourite director of all time, Paul Thomas Anderson. Still haven't seen some of his films, but I'm saving up, etc. Look at last week's episode for more information on why I've not seen all the films by my favourite director. At, look at a thing that you hear with your ears. That's, that's important. Uh, yeah. Do that. Do, do that. Um, it's great. It's a very Paul Thomas Anderson film, but it's also a real evolution from his previous films. The, the film we watched last week, Boogie Nights has a lot of similarity sort of cinematically and, and so on, but actually this is almost like a, a darker, more grown-up version. And the films between Boogie Nights and this kind of show that development as well. What I really love about this film is I really like sitting there watching something, kind of not necessarily wash over me, but watching watching something living in a character portrait and 
just thinking uh, all the way through a film and wanting to talk about it and wanting to share it with people. And I think Paul, Paul Tom Sanderson does that better than anybody else. When I watch his films, I really want to get other people to be watching the film at the same time. Yeah, so you can have that dialogue about what's happening. You think there's like an, there's an element in his filmmaking um, that asks more questions than it answers, would you say? Yeah, it's not handed on a, on a platter. It's kind of, there might be one line in the whole film that's kind of the point of the film, and if you missed it, then you miss out a little bit. And So this film, I should just very briefly describe the plot for anybody who's not seen it, or if you've not seen it for a while. Always important. We've got... We've got here. Yeah, we've got Daniel Plainview. He's a very ambitious oil prospector. That's Daniel Day Lewis's character. Daniel Day Lewis's character, um, and it's essentially his journey over the course of about twenty or thirty or well, thirty years, whereby he becomes rich, becomes very successful as an oil baron, I suppose you'd call it, and then he he has an ongoing duel with a local. Uh, priest would he, is he a priest what is he is a um, pastor a pastor is more pastor would be more because i think well he's 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 a protestant not a protestant I, they don't really have protestants in north america do they um, <laughs> how would you describe it so he's he's a religious pastor of this small californian town but he's That's not, right but he's not you wouldn't say he's like he's not ordained by the by any sort of um, you know, authority. He kind of is just this sort of not wild would be the wrong word, but charismatic. Like, yeah, unlicensed would be a great word to describe. <laughs> well, he is, isn't he? Because he's yeah. he's too young to have been to any sort of have any sort of religious education, other than kind of what he learnt himself or what he'd been taught by by previous religious people within uh, this small, uh, not this small area, but this sparsely populated area. In, uh, yeah, and he does have, he puts on a show, you know, Daniel kind of does a tell that to him. Uh, so just crack on with it, yeah, the synopsis. So he kind of has this ongoing feud with him, and we basically see a, the, the life of Daniel Plainview for 30 years, where he becomes rich, very successful, makes loads of money, and basically sort of retires to become a ghost in a big house. Mm. And it's like almost all Paul Thomas Anderson films, it's not about that plot. It's really a character study, it's really a character yeah. portrait. I would argue that. It's about themes. Sorry, I would yeah, I would argue that it's more of a snapshot of his life for about a year in between nineteen eleven and nineteen twelve, and then it's kind of bookended by the by the beginning of the film in I think is it eighteen ninety eight, and then That's the very right. end is it twenty six or twenty seven I think it is twenty seven yeah, no, yeah. twenty seven no, yeah 27. absolutely you're right it's it's predominantly about one particular year where he strikes it particularly well. And it's really hard to describe film plot-wise, but in another way, it's very easy to describe. What would you it's, say the themes are? The themes, there's a few. There's some very obvious religious themes. Um, yeah. It's kind of a battle between Daniel Plainview, who is not religious, but he will use religion to his benefit. Um, so religion's a big theme. In some ways, well, yeah, uh, ambition, capitalism is a huge theme. You know, he's mm. kind of chasing money at the expense of everything. He adopts a co-worker's young infant child but basically adopts him as a token as a you know as a business tool yeah. to try to get try to get some contracts um and he yeah he's he's in search of money but not for the sake of the money actually he you know he says what will i do if I, if you make me a millionaire what will i do next mm. um it's, so it's really it's about money it's about religion it's about in some ways it's about masculinity as well 
it's about, he's a very sort of old-fashioned masculine. I felt watching you know. it that it's about power as well, like power that mm-hmm, yeah. people can hold over certain individuals and the the way they can hold on to assets or they can promise wealth through sort of assets that they hold. Yeah, that. whereby he doesn't really have any power over people except that he has the resources to make that. You know, when he goes to see old, old man Sunday at the Sunday farm mm-hmm. and, you know, offers him a price for his land, the old man's not into bargaining. He's the sort of weaker of the two, even though he has something that Daniel wants. And there's a really great thing. I, I watched a fascinating interview, Daniel Day-Lewis and Paul Thomas Anderson being interviewed by Charlie Rose in America. Mm-hmm. And he says, you know, this is a man who's spent basically all his adult life in caves or down mines on his own, essentially. And yet he's somehow he's got to cultivate this silver-toned salesman um, persona. And it's the first lines in the film, actually, are him selling, uh, trying to get a contract from a local local area that struck oil. And he's so convincing. It's impossible not to talk about this film without talking about that voice, without talking about his manner, and really how he gets across his, his wares, really, and yeah. tries to sell himself to the to the people yeah um okay so what uh why what do you like specifically about the film um i really like the in some ways ambiguity what i really like actually and this has become very apparent uh, in the last 20 years in american tv shows is the the anti-hero yeah. Uh, the first time I ever heard the word anti-hero was doing A-level English literature and it was used when we were reading about Dracula, who's this anti-hero because he's this magnetic villain who you actually really like because he's charis- charismatic and strong, but who's a villain. And that's exactly what Daniel Plainview is. And you'll, you can see many different places. Dracula was an inspiration for Daniel Plainview. Okay. There's some really clear visual nods as well, actually, to that. Uh, that You know, the gothic mansion that he ends up in. There's one shot in particular. So when he is awoken by Bandy after he's shot his um, supposed uh, brother, he agrees to um, come to the church and be baptised and he stands up and he puts his coat on and he looks over his shoulder and it is the Dracula pose. It's, you know, big collar, he's looking to the side, kind of a proud nose. It really struck me because it was the second time I watched it this week I watched it the first time, did some research, found out about the Dracula inspiration and saw that and I thought, oh my God, that is like Paul Thomas Anderson going, by the way, this is Dracula. Yeah, he's sucking, and, the, instead of sucking the blood out of people, he's sucking the the mineral wealth out of people. Yeah, so well that's another thing, yeah, the oil is clearly blood in so many different places and so many different ways and it's and there's, there's a religious um, sort of a, uh, importance attached to the, to the oil when they first strike oil. One of his yeah. co-workers sort of puts basically like a cross of oil on his son's head, uh, HW's it head. Does, yeah. And that's, you know, that's quite clear. But the Dracula thing, it's just so good because what's so fascinating about Dracula and a lot of novels at the time, uh, I think basically Darwin discovers the uh, theory of, you know, natural selection. And then you have this wealth of science and literature that's based on that. You have things like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde that are really looking at that duality of man. This They're sort of fighting with this prospect that we can be you know, human and animal. And Dracula is one of those. Dracula is a really urbane gentleman of the drama town. He's very charming, very, you know, uh, just very charming, very charismatic, but he's an animal and he wants to, wants to kill. That's kind of like there's some sexual imagery there as well. And that really is captured in this. Yeah. 
Yeah, although that's so, something yeah. I noticed on watching this that's kind of missing from this film. That there's there's no real sexuality to the film, so to speak. There's no yeah, There's no women. Yeah, <laughs> not really, no. He's he's an asexual character in many ways. I mean Eli Sunday does talk about him, you know, um, I can't remember the word he uses, but, you know, cavorting with women or he's lusting after women. And you don't see that at all. He's not a man who's tempted by anything. He's not tempted by friendship because he hates people. He's not tempted by women. He seems contemptuous at best, you know, about the prospect of other people. So why would you think I would like this film then? I think you would like it. I mean, you really like Boogie Nights. I do, so I know yeah. that you're not the sort of person who's put off by a vaguely meandering character portrait that's, you know, over two hours long. No, not at all. I mean, the more meandering, the longer. Sometimes the better for me. I find. But, <laughs> yeah, um, and it's. I know that you. I know that you appreciate good cin- cinematography. I know you appreciate a good score. We should talk mm-hmm. about the soundtrack. Actually, uh, I don't know if you know about the controversy surrounding the soundtrack. Uh, no, I don't. I think should, we'll, go on then. Explain. Do you know, do you know who sound? Do you know who did the score? Yeah, it's a guy called Johnny Greenwood. Yes, uh, what British. Else? You know his name. Yes, and lead guitarist of Radiohead. Yeah, I thought that's. I thought I recognised him um, when I quickly looked him up. Um, it really. I mean, it, it's good for me. Radiohead are my favourite band, and uh, that's a big plus for me. He's gone on. To, he also scored the Master, and. Uh, uh, probably another film by Tom, Paul Thomas Anderson. What? This was his first Chasing ever him? film score. Yeah. <laughs> That's uh, the, fa- the Phantom Thread. He did the Phantom Thread as well. Phantom Thread, yeah. yeah. That. Um, so he, in my eyes, would have been nailed on for the Oscar and he would have gotten some, some nominations. However, he it was disqualified because he didn't write all of the pieces specifically for the film. He kind of adapted and used some pieces that he already had what <laughs> that's a bit dodgy <laughs> isn't it i mean i get it by the letter of the law that it's not original for this film but oh that's shaky ground isn't it did they did they change anything afterwards i mean i wasn't aware of this but surely oh by the way i've got this ridiculous i've got a famous uh, guitarist from one of the biggest bands in the world um of course he's going to have a bit of spare music lying around <laughs> that he's going to use it. yeah oh in fact he worked with paul thomas paul thomas anderson again recently um, well, actually, Radiohead worked with Paul Thomas Anderson again recently. There's a, a 15 minute or so long short, sort of long music video on Netflix called Anime. Right, okay. I might check it out. I believe that's how you pronounce it. It's good. It's, you know, it doesn't make any sense. It's sort of dreamlike and it's absurd, but. Uh, Classic Radiohead. It's really good. Yeah, exactly. It's Radiohead. It's Paul, Tom, Tom, Paul Thomas Anderson. I'm going to say P.T. Anderson from now. <laughs> Too many syllables. Um, Things I think you might not like about it, Ooh. I uh, I don't know. I don't know what you wouldn't like about it. I think for for a lot of people, it can get boring if they're in the wrong mood, but I don't think you're that sort of person. If you caught it in the wrong mood, maybe, maybe, mm, uh, you'd find okay. it boring after after a time. But, you know, I'd struggle, I'd struggle to think of many things that you would find problematic about it. Okay. So, yeah, I look forward to hearing your view. After the break, we'll find out what Hugh thinks. Welcome back. We're going to find out what Hugh thinks of There Will Be Blood. Hugh, did you like There Will Be Blood? I'm crossing my fingers. Right, Sam, I'm going to be brutally honest with you. Oh, for God's sake. (laughs) It's another The Shining. Yeah. 
didn't enjoy it as much. I, I didn't like it as much as I thought I was going to. Oh dear. I Talk know. To me. Yeah, I, I'll be honest with you. It's not that I dislike the film. I don't sit there and go, this is a bad film. I just was left feeling like. I'm going to do, you know, because we're doing a double Paul Anson back to back double header. I wasn't left feeling, oh wow, I've really watched an interesting slice of life there. I've really watched this amazing piece of cinema and this great character study. And it's, it, right, let's put it this way it's, the ambitions for this film are lofty. The cinematography, the character, the, the setting, they're all very. They're, they're up there. They're so high and up there looking at, down at the cinema. You know, it, it, like I appreciate the technical side of this film. Like, again, I do, the, uh, the cinematographer, um, whose name I don't know, <laughs> but the cinematography <laughs> won best, best, uh, best Cinematography at the Oscars for this film in 2008 when it was presented. So, and um, you can see that in this film. The film just left me feeling a little cold. I'll be honest mm. with you. Where Boogie Nights, you felt going, oh, that was interesting. Oh, they, that that's something that could have happened with this. I agree with you that it is clearly the the progression of a filmmaker's craft as he goes along through the years. So you can see that Boogie Nights is, hey, here's a fun film about people having a fun time and and then here's some of the bad sides of that lifestyle that they chose to pursue. Here, whilst I agree with you that the ambiguity of the characters and their decision-making is is intentional, I found that there was points in the film where it didn't make... The, the decisions sometimes that Daniel Plainview makes don't make sense, and they're very random and... I would have preferred if there was a bit. Maybe it's me, but I think I felt like I would have needed more explanation to some of the actions that the character chooses to take. Have you got any in mind? Yeah. So um, the one. I mean, okay. Look, it sets up the dramatic tension of the film, which is basically his quarrel with um, Paul Dano's character, uh, Eli. First of all, can I just say as caveat to this is I didn't realize for about fifty minutes that Eli and Paul. Uh, his brother at the beginning of the film who come to see Daniel and Kieran Hines' character Fletcher at the beginning were two separate characters. Right. It, only, yeah. it only dawned on me when he beats his father up after he gets beaten up by uh, Plainview. Wow, I thought, that's interesting. Yeah, I thought it was the same character. I thought when he gets to the farm, I just thought, oh, Eli was just being a bit within himself because he didn't want to give too much away. And then Maybe he, he was play yeah, he was acting in front of his dad. Um and know that he was kind of acting in front of um Fletcher and Daniel. So I, I thought, oh, it's the same it's the same character, but he's got back before Plainview's managed to get up there. And I was like, why all the deceit? Why the why are they pretending like they've never met? And then I just thought, oh, they're just doing that because now he's Eli's basically, this is what I'm actually like. It didn't even dawn on me that he says his name is, he probably says his name's Paul to Fletcher and uh, Plainview at the beginning, and I just didn't register what his name was. So it was only when he introduced himself the second time. Originally, on casting, Paul Dano was only going to play Paul. Yeah. And they actually fired or, you know, replaced the person who was due to play Eli because they basically wanted more Paul Dano. 
and yeah. uh, and they sort of felt like he was wasted as Paul. It does add a free song because you know when he goes and he sees Eli, there's a raise of the eyebrow kind of really. <laughs> you didn't tell me you were twins. Um, I can yeah. see why you think that. There's a the, one of the things I'm realizing doing this podcast is it's so important to watch a film twice because something like that is so obvious to somebody who's seen it lots of times. Um, and when you when you realize it, you go, oh well, obviously. And when you watch it again, you go, oh, he says I'm Paul. He mentions his brother Eli when he gets to the farm. Eli's there, and he's and he does mention Paul. Yeah, but you're right. I mean, watching a film first time actually is not that easy to get to pick up on everything, even if it's even some simple films. You can you can get yeah. lost. To. That's I fair mean, enough. Like what you were saying there about oh well they. Ch- so I I've read that fact as well. To be fair, um, you know IMDb is great for stuff like this. Oh um, yeah. Um, once you know it, and then when you think back, when I think back on it, it's like, oh well, yeah, that's quite obvious. Like, I mean, Paul Dano's great in this film. Don't get me wrong; he's power. He has a powerful performance. He really sells the, um, you know, the turn of the century um, shyster, huckster <laughs> sort of charlatan Bible basher, so to speak. If I'm he to does say that because term. you only you only see the shysterness sort of behind his eyes. It's never that. He's on camera doing something atrocious or against. He's just he's just a bit too pious. Um, yeah, too. Early. You see his shysterness through Daniel because what's the what's the phrase? Don't don't bullshit a bullshitter. He's like, yeah. no, I'm the snake oil salesman in this town. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so like that scene when so the first thing is okay. Why doesn't I know he doesn't want to get? He can see that this characters trying to involve himself in his work and Plainview can see that but the decision not to let him bless the Derek just doesn't make sense just do it just be like look if because he's such a driven character you're like why are you setting up conflict that could interrupt your oil business your... well I think what you said earlier was interesting about it being power it's because I think it's because Eli comes to him saying and then you can say my name he's sort of throwing down that gauntlet say my name kind of thing and in that moment actually Daniel's got the got the upper hand doesn't he and he, he knows he can stick the stick the knife in and but why but what, what okay power but this is a character whose only determination is to be an oil man is to become a millionaire off it if that's his only motivation why is he why is he messing around if is he, he could have solved his own problem by going okay here's eli and if you wanted to show a bit of power he could have just not done the introduction do you know that kind yeah, of Yeah, I, I think he'd still be seeding power who would be making the opening about Eli. And I think it's interesting. The, one of the reasons why 10 years, 12 years on, Daniel Plainview is still such an interesting character is because he is one-dimensional in his ambition, but he has a couple of moments. There's a really influential book in screenwriting called Save the Cat that I'm sure you might have heard of. Yeah. A lot of our listeners might have heard of as well. Who's as well, Connor? Blake Snyder. Okay. And he he's basically written a manual on how to write a, a screenplay to sell. Yeah. And the reasons why it's called the Save the Cat is because you've got to show your hero saving a cat at the start in order to get the viewer to like him. You've got to make him do something good to get him to like them. So you know, the start of Inside the Well and Davis, and I said the Well and Bowen. <laughs> um, he literally saves a cat in Hellboy. He literally saves a cat. There's mm. all kinds of films where they do something good in this. I suppose not necessarily. I suppose like a save the cat moment is at the opening of the Derrick. The girl um, goes past. What's her name now? I've forgotten. Uh, the young girl Sunday, 
Um, mm. And he grabs her and he says, no more beatings, okay? No more beatings. Mm. Knowing that um, that his, her father is sat across the table from him. Yeah. It's this weird thing. It's it's his complete disdain towards religion and that religious solitary that means that you beat your daughter for not praying. Yeah, It's that, but it's also a, a positive character moment. You know, he's actually doing something really good for that little yeah, girl. Yeah, and, and that sets up the ambiguity of this character. Do you know what I mean? And, and then I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but it's one of those, well, do you want me to like this character? As a, as a filmmaker, do you want me to like this character? Do you want me to sympathise with him? What emotions are you trying to convey with this character? Because obviously by the end of it, he's a murderer <laughs> and you don't yeah. sympathize with the character and he alienates his son you can see that i mean I'm, i'll be honest another thing i don't like about this film is the time jump is too big i mean they go from 1911 to 1926 and everyone looks about five a year older i mean well Paul apart from Dunn, hw yeah but obviously that's a different actor but that's the point yeah. it, i always I, I i can see why on paper that makes sense that decision because that is a good scene in isolation but all i was sat watching was i it's a good scene on its own but it's a bit of a weird scene as well because it comes after basically plainview gets his son basically tells him to piss off essentially and doesn't want anything <laughs> to do with it you know he wants to get so far away from his son that he's moving to uh, mexico to try and find oil uh, to work outdoors and yeah it the tone is a bit off there um I this I think you probably you're making some valid points, but I think this might be one of those things where if you watch this in two years' time, it all clicks into place and it maybe and it does follow. Look, I'm always open-minded when it comes to watching. Like, look, this film is a good film in regards. Like I said, the cinematography is great. The performances by Deneau and Daniel Day Lewis are amazing. I can't deny that. Do you know what I mean? They're both. Are acting out of their skins in this film. It's uh, it's it was worth it just to watch those two's performances in this film. Like I wish I'd seen it earlier just to enjoy that. Like, but then I also do have this thing. I really like Daniel Day Lewis. I always have. I, he's he's a cut. And a, I think I said last week he's a cut above everyone else when it comes to acting. But there's also a point when it's a film that's so when he is the main character of the film. Sometimes. He kind of, you, am I watching the film or am I just watching the actor? And if you've seen Lincoln, which I don't wish on anyone, <laughs> quite honestly, <laughs> <laughs> I watched that film and I was like, oh, I've just watched a film for the last nearly three hours. Um, and it's just Daniel Day-Lewis doing a really good impression of what he thinks Abraham Lincoln was like. And when Day-Lewis doesn't have the material to work from, which he does in this, he can come across as self-indulgent. Where in this, he's not self-indulgent, but I feel like the rest of the film is self-indulgent. Well, it's interesting you say that, because he is in every single scene in this film, apart from two. Yeah. Do you know either of the two scenes that he's in? Yes, yeah, so he's not in the one with when when he gets, when Eli speaks to his father and basically beats his father up. Yeah, and the other scene he's not in, I can't recall. Uh, it's about ten seconds long. It's H.W. getting married. Oh right. Oh yeah. There's there's barely any. I don't think there's even any dialogue in that scene. <laughs> yeah, it's just like just let's just show them. Show they get married. Yeah. And I think 
I think that can come across as, like, say, maybe indulgent or, or like you're just watching a, a performance. And really, there is it's something so strange when it's such a good performance and the camera's on him so much. And mm. for, as we know from Paul Thomas Anderson, can be on a long shot, a long tracking shot or a long shot. Mm. It can feel like this is acting. We're watching somebody be great at acting, regardless of what the film is. But I think, as you said, actually, that the material does justify that. Okay, well, I think I don't agree with that. I think I don't think the story's compelling enough to make you sit down and watch it once. I, I'd watch this film again to see if I, my opinion changed. Like you said, maybe in a couple of years. But yeah, I don't th- actually. Do you know what? I didn't enjoy it, Sam. I really thought I was going to enjoy it. I'm, I actually am sat here genuinely shocked at like. I mean, that is I the measure, did, isn't it? It's did you yeah. enjoy it? It's not. Could you could you write an essay saying why it's good? I do think it's I do think it's something to watch again. But one of the reasons is because with a film like this, mm. something can seem so um, inert, so insignificant, but actually is the main thing. So, for example, when he's sat on the beach with his sort of brother, mm. and he's talking about um, you know we can what does he say we could uh, get liquored up and go to the dance mm. and. And it's just the first time that he seems to be the, this giddy, giddy adolescent. Mm. And then he his expression changes and he walks into the sea. It's something like that. You go, boom, that hits you right in the gut. And I do think... I think for me, I really loved it when I first watched it. But I loved it ten times more when I watched it again this week. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, because that was there. And, and I do think... I do think you might still find it leaves you cold when you watch it again but it's not so, yeah, yeah for me it really yeah, hit me yeah it left me cold it left me it, I, I i kept questioning the characters decisions because mm. they set out quite like you said he does he kind of does save the cat at the beginning because he ends up injuring himself breaking his leg and dragging himself all the way to the town and uh you know he doesn't die in that instance. Obviously, it would have been a strange film if he had died in that instance. But <laughs> he, do, he should, you kind of admire the determination of the character. He's like, oh my god, he's you know he's in a rough situation here, but actually he's he's made the, he makes the best of it. And to compound that, he then adopts HW, which looks yeah. fantastic. He's on the train with HW, and they're just playing, and he's you know he's he's feeding him his bottle, putting a bit of whiskey on that. That is quite beautiful until he says, you know, this is my partner, my son and my partner, HW, and you go, oh, what's this? Where's, you know, where's this going? How is he using HW in this context? And then obviously But again, that's... I think he cares for HW. I think that's the thing they, they show that the, the, the film spends its time trying, or people have said, oh, well, he doesn't really care about HW. Like, okay, yeah, the bit on the train is harrowing, I must admit, like... yeah. Again, but again, strange character motivations. He could have just said, "Look, I can't look after you here anymore. I'm, I'm really sorry, but I don't know what to do with a deaf child. I'm going to send you to a school where they can educate you." I mean, who's going to yeah. argue with that? Who's going to be? But that's like, the point. That's the point, isn't it? That he—that's one of the questions actually. I wrote, I wrote down to ask you: Do you think he ever loved him? Because there are times when he clearly seems to. Let's say when the Derek sets on fire, when they, you know, when there's pluming and, and mm. HW's lost his hearing. He's he's being very paternal. He's really nurturing him, and then he's I'll be right back. And then it's it's actually gone pitch black. It's so dark, and he's still watching the fire. And uh, Fletcher says to him, "You know, is, is H, HW okay? No, he's not going to be okay." 
Yeah. And he doesn't move from the spot. Fletcher is the one who goes and cares for him. And then when he loses his hearing, he just becomes a it just becomes a hindrance to him trying to get this this pipeline. So I'm still a bit I'm still a bit unsure. I think there's a strange bit of mercy in the final scene with HW. He's almost <laughs> I didn't think I'd bring up Harry and the Hendersons. Have you seen Harry and the Hendersons? Oh gosh. The what the T V <laughs> show about the the Bigfoot that lives with that family yeah. in America somewhere. I used to watch it when I was a very small child, but I don't yeah. remember any of it. It's one of those things that you almost think, did I dream that? There's a bit yeah, where John but... Lithgow's character knows oh, that... He's John Lithgow, isn't he? <laughs> exactly. The 90s were odd. Um, where he's shooing Harry away. He's He knows that it's not good for him to stay there, so he's, he's saying, get out of here, and throws rocks at him to make sure he leaves. Yeah. In my mind, sometimes when I watch this film, I think that's what Daniel's doing to HW when he calls him a bastard in a basket and you know shouting after him in one yeah. way I think I feel like he's he's saying okay you know I'm telling you there's none of me and you you can go and enjoy your life but but then again the way I read that was oh well I would have loved to have seen all the reasons why his son doesn't like his father anymore because his son just basically says look I'm going away to I'm going away to Mexico you don't see any of the okay you see you can see an an embryonic sort of nascent, right? Here is I've set, I, I left my you left me to you didn't tell me you were going away you left me and that was really awful and then you brought me back but he brings him back if he hadn't brought him back then I'd be like yeah I can see why you don't like your father you don't really know him you don't spend any time with him he he was just using you to get oil money but he brought him back out of guilt so I mean well he okay. brought him back when the when the pipeline was done. Yeah, okay, maybe this is me being a simplistic reader of a film and saying, look, I am, I, I, I have been presented here with a nuanced character and I am in turmoil and therefore my turmoil has turned out to be that I don't like this film because I can't, I, I am trying to either, I'm wanting to do one of two things, either despise or sympathise and I can't do that here. Maybe that's my. Maybe it's me, but I don't. <laughs> I'll, um, I'll choose to believe that. I'll take that. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> However, that said, <laughs> oh. I. And that is a good thing because sometimes in art you need to question your audience. You can't feed, you know, spoon feed them everything. Where in this, I am brought down on the side of your character doesn't explain himself at all even based on the morality of the time that he's meant to be setting. So when um, his, you know, his fake brother turns up, uh, spoiler alert, uh, <laughs> um, he... Did, oh, yeah, did I mention that at the start? We are going to spoil this yeah, film? Yeah, <laughs> I haven't realised by now. <laughs> Although it's, it is, that is, there's only literally... That, that is the only spoiler in this film, I think. And yeah, it's not, it's not... That's the great sets. thing. It's, it's not a plot where... There's a mystery, and then they're going to try and solve it. It's really just—it's an experiential film, not to sound yeah. too wanky. But yeah, so, yeah, sorry, so his, his brother. Yeah, so he, so his brother, when his brother turns up, he asks him about what he's done before, you know, before he basically ended up in California, and he, Daniel Plainview basically just says, um, "Oh, I was working out in the mountains somewhere, but I didn't like that." That's all I have to say about that. I'm not going to explain myself. And there, in one bit of dialogue, he's cut off any inquiry into this character other than what he says 
to him then. I mean, okay, in that same scene, you also have a bit where he says, oh, um, you know, I have a, I have a competition in me. Uh, I, you know, I want no one else to succeed. Um, and I hate people. So that's the character's motivation. Well, why didn't you say this an hour ago? <laughs> why is it now that we're finding out this is the true colours of the character? Well, this is this is the beauty and the significance of that scene, and this again might be something that that kind of didn't totally click on on first viewing. That this for Daniel is the first time he's ever really felt a connection and being able to confide in anybody. You know, it's in that it's in that scene that he's you know I I don't know how long I can you know deal with these uh, people because he's really he's silver tongued to everybody. You know, he, he manipulates HW, he manipulates his potential clients, he manipulates everybody, his workers and so on. And this is the first time that he's really opening up about, I'm not this great paternal figure, I'm not this selfless figure, I don't like people, I want people to to fail, I've got this competition in me. Did it Did it make sense when he shot him for you? Um... You no, know, I've that I've got I've got this down here as well. I've put that killing Henry in brackets questionable. So I'm not sure how I feel about that. So again, for me that that made no sense when I first watched it. I thought that's really harsh. Just send him on his way. It's basically him deleting his internet browsing history. <laughs> he's 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 shared something with him. He's, he's this thing that he's been repressing and he's been shame. It's mm. been a shame for him. Uh, this whole time, and he doesn't, and it's he's not like this with anybody else. He's opened up to this man. Mm. It's like when Paul first goes there and says, "You know, can I have some money? Here's where you can go." And he says to Paul, "If I go there and I find you're you're lying to me, I'll be coming back for more than my money." You know, it's that he's he's opened up so much to his brother, to Henry, and he's now that he finds out he's not his brother, he's going to take more than those secrets back. Yeah, that's his only way of hiding his shame, literally burying his shame. Yeah. Yeah, I think the character's... I mean, the character's very proud. Um, he doesn't like humiliation, you know. He's very human in that sense. Um, you know, I think this is a good time to get into uh, favourite scenes and favourite lines because we kind of yeah. go straight into that territory. So, because... it's Look, I'm not, not a fan of this film. I think that's important to say. I just... It just left me feeling cold. And it didn't... It doesn't... I'm not going to go back and watch it anytime soon. Is the quiet is the honest truth. Like where Boogie Nights, if that's on TV in a year or two from now, and it and I sit down and it's halfway through, I'll sit and watch it. You know, it's Boogie Nights is one of those films where with this, if it's on TV in a year or two, I'll probably change the channel. <laughs> well, I tell you what, I'm just setting a notation in my calendar two years from now yep. to arrange a Saturday night uh, movie with you. I won't tell you it's this one. I'll right. get a couple of beers in and I'll just put it on and I'll say, yeah. look, you're going to enjoy <laughs> enjoy this film. <laughs> no, I completely... Well, the, sorry, yes, yeah, so favourite scenes. What was your favourite scene? Um, I can't choose... I'm being very uh, difficult this week, but I can't choose between <laughs> the oil, uh, the gas explosion at the beginning. I mm. think that's a great scene, quite frankly. I think there is a lot of good in this film. I just, I think maybe I just don't like the way it's put together. Maybe that's yeah, I mean, that I is what we talked about last week with PTAs. He is very cinematic. Yeah. And that is the most, this is a film uh, scene mm. of the whole thing, really, isn't it? And that's where, um, you know, that's yeah. where the cinematographer Robert Ellswick really comes into his own and that's, earns that's his money. Cinematographer is. Yeah, so 
and the, like the music does a lot of heavy lifting in this film as well. Um, mm. Where like in Star Wars, for instance, I think the heavy lift, the music complements what you see on screen 90% of the time. Um, it sets the scene. With this, sometimes the music does work and it works in this scene. There's some great percussion in this scene. Um, oh, yeah. That is quite it's very radiohead as well. Now when you hit, yeah. yeah, very radiohead. But like the opening shot, you have this really loud uh, Lucas style THX um, sound advert, you know, at the beginning, you know, where you have these large, you know, horns go off and it's just some mountains. And you just, the music's really poor in certain choice, cho- not chosen, it's poor in certain parts. It's Do you know like, how he made that sound? Do you know how they did that? No. It was he's, Johnny Greenwood, fascinating interview on the BBC Radio. He said mm. that basically he got the whole orchestra to just play a wall of sound, mm. and the variation just comes from human error. You know, mm. people can't play like a wall of sound, like a computer, like mm. a like a machine. All the different sort of changes in tone and volume is just them messing up. You know, in a very human way, it's not it's not perfect. Yeah. I know what you mean. It, it feels discordant, or it feels. It's striking. For me, Don't get striking. Me For me, I really, it really got me into the mindset. I think I really at certain points, it. it's used so well. And I think there's no sound, is there, at the, in the end scene when he, kills, mm. um, when he kills Eli. I think there's no sound at all. In the, uh, no, sorry, no sound. There's no music in that yeah. scene at all. I think that's a really wise choice. And this is what it, would feel, it would feel dramatic. It would feel, you know, yeah, forced. Yeah, where that would have been a scene maybe you should have had some music in it. Maybe not at the very end, but I think there could have been some music in that bit. Um, what, in the, when he kills Eli? Yeah, I think maybe... I don't know, it would feel like... A, it would feel less real, I think. It's it's because it's so brutal. It's such a horrible, brutal way to die that it would just feel like a... But then it does such heavy drama. lifting... Sorry, but it does heavy lifting in other parts where he's just walking around and there's this big, loud music going off. And you're like, yeah, but oh, when well, you're battering is... somebody with a bowling pin, you don't need the music to do anything. But in other films that I know you like, the score is integral to some, a lot of the action that you enjoy. So how come in this film that it's okay to have no like, um, di- non-diegetic music and then in other films it's fine to do that? I mean, I and, think and a film that has set itself... Sorry, but it's a film that's... Sorry to interrupt. It's a film that's set its stall out with a lot of music with here is we're going to, like you said, a wall of sound. So I would have thought at the crescendo of the film, because that's what I think they use the, they use it in great in that Derek scene when it goes, when they, they hit the gas, it, you know, you've got the tension of the oil well burning down. How are they going to deal with it? Why didn't they have something like that with the tension for this scene where it's building up, you know, you, when Eli's going, you know, I'm a false prophet and uh, religion is a superstition you know, why didn't it have the gripping music there? That's poor director director choice, in my opinion. Now, quite honestly, I I mean, I see your point. I I know, I know that a lot of films would do that. You know, like you say, rising tension, a big crescendo when he's hit. I, but too, I'd be fascinated to hear that. I'd love to see that scene with that kind of music to mm. compare. For me, I think it's because it's such a lonely, hollow old house, mm. um, and he's sort of a ghost there that. I really like. I really liked it because, because. It, well, again, it's it's just brutal. It's it's like in 
the Bourne films when you hear the punches, you know, and it really yeah. you really hear it. You don't need like a striking chord to do that. I think it. I think, yeah. All I can do is tell you that I I loved it without the music, but I would love to hear it with mm. just to compare. I found it strange that a film that uses its music so well and uses it to convey a lot of the plot and a lot of the um, the the atmosphere of a scene would then choose not to use it. Oh, I mean, yeah, sometimes they say, oh, well, it's strikingly different to the rest of the film to make a point. Here's a big wall of sound, as we said, and then here's yeah. it without, here's an important bit. But, yeah, I think... But it's it's not uncommon. It's not uncommon for films... No, not at all. When a, when a major character is shot, everything goes silent, you can't hear anybody speaking, there's no sound at all, mm. because... It's not needed, and I think maybe that was the thinking behind it. Yeah. I, I guess it's horses for courses. People My other, isn't it? I mean, another great scene is in the church when he's being baptized. Um, yeah, that, that that is powerful. Do you, you think know. there's a crack in his armor there? Because he's he's only been told to say, "I've abandoned my child." It's when he says, mm. "I've abandoned my boy." He's almost feeling it there. I think. Yeah, definitely. But um, then, when he's done, he goes. Right, let's get the pipeline done. <laughs> yeah, I think, doesn't he say, does he say I've abandoned my boy before he says, let's get this over with or something like that? He says something yeah, along like, those uh, I've abandoned my child. Lord, let, let's get through this and let me leave, Lord. Yeah, I've yeah. abandoned my boy. Yeah, and, you know, knowing uh, knowing Daniel Day-Lewis, he, you know, he probably told Paul Dino to smack him as hard as he could. Yeah, you've got to um, imagine those slaps are real, because yeah. why fake it? Yeah, especially the bit where he's that I mentioned earlier when he's at the um when he beats up uh Eli and uh, he probably hits him for real there as well. <laughs> yeah. But then I just didn't understand that scene. Like he had agreed to give the church five grand. He had agreed to that. So he again he would have just saved himself a load of bother giving the church the money and just be like, Right, I'm done with it. And then if he came back asking for more, then you could be like Right, I'm going to beat the shit out of them. Yeah, it did strike me as it did strike me as not necessarily out of character, but when I watched it, I th- I'd forgotten that he just it was quite quite violent, quite quickly in a word. Mm. One thing it reminded me of actually thinking about it is in Goodfellas when um, Joe Pesci's character is at the is at the club and the owner mm. of the club comes up and he says, "Look, you've got you've got to pay your tab. You know, it's seven thousand mm. dollars." And he just even though Joe Pesci's in the, in the wrong, he explodes at him. You know, showing me up in front of my friends. Daniel's there in front of his his workers and you're right it did strike me as surprising but I I liked it <laughs> I felt I felt something yeah I feel like sometimes in this film there's a lot of great scenes surrounded by mismatches in tone now I'm with you I think Paul Thomas Anderson's a good director and the scenes that I like in this I like them for their own merit I just kind of wish they were in a better film I I, all, I actually like I like the premise as well. I like the fact that you you sit and you look at the lot or a snapshot of the life of this um, oil prospector who essentially is quite a terrible person. You know, I think that's like you said. It's you admire his determination. You admire his his single mindedness, his charisma. But ultimately, you're like, well, I wouldn't want to be like that person because it shows what. You know, the film has its... In fact, the film does have its own moral judgments, which I'd say Boogie Nights doesn't. It's the fact that they say, yeah, well, look, if you are successful in a, in a field, um, 
metaphorically and physically, <laughs> pun intended, um, then you are going to be this lonely, angry, bitter person. Or is it saying that this was even if he wasn't successful, he was always going to be this way? Now, for me, the more interesting thing is then, well, then how did Plainview become like this? Because you basically see him when he's about, let's, I mean, I think Daniel Day-Lewis was basically 50, 49 when he made this film. So he's in his late 40s. But let's say, you know, movie stars age better than the rest of us. So let's say the character's <laughs> about 38, 39 when we first meet him. He's in his late 30s. Right, let's just give him the benefit of the doubt. So by the time you see him in 1911, he's, what, 45, nearly 50-ish? He's about the same. He's a few years younger than Daniel Day-Lewis is in real life. I think mm-hmm. would be a fair assessment. I think so. Yeah. Uh, um, so you get this character who he's already bitter and twisted because he's nearly fifty. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> he's in it, or he's you know he's already become who he is before any of the work that he ends up going on to doing. That's Are you suggesting we need an origin story. Look, there will be blood in the distant future. <laughs> There wasn't. Yeah. Eventually, there will be blood. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Oil. Call it oil. Yeah. (laughs) Then make a sequel. There was blood. (laughs) Yeah. Although uh, that'd be a fascinating sequel to see how that character deals with being in prison. That would. I'd watch that. Watch the shit out of that because he has a singular. (laughs) But he does. He has a singular aim, and his aim at that point will be to survive prison. I also think that. The time jump's too big in this film. I mean, as I said earlier, it's clearly a man who... He doesn't look... Again, Hollywood actors don't age them like everyone else. You know, I, so I agree with that in the sense that... He's in his mid-60s there, and he just... In the, I don't in, the face he looks, in the face, he looks the same. They're giving him a bit of a grey. But I would like to point your attention to a film that came out only a few years after, the final Harry Potter. When they added 20 years, that looked <laughs> awful. So yeah, really, I prefer, him, I prefer him to wear a cardigan walk around like he's completely screwed up, like his you know, spine's bent and his knee's completely gone, and put a bit of grey on him and completely unshaven. I'd rather that, where he's just this old drunken mess, I without think it's, it distracting. It's really hard to make somebody older than what they are. It's interesting yeah. that it, there's a physicality that comes with ageing that you can't replicate. You just can't. Exactly, and there was, there was a practicality issue of you have to have HW be a grown man who's married with with mm. some career. Yeah. So you have to set it, you know, 15 yeah. years later. Now, if the f- now, if the film had done a better job at setting that up, if there'd been one or two scenes, maybe 10 years later, or seven or eight years later, and then another one a couple of years after that, and then you had the, the scene where um, Eli comes to see him and, ask, and tell him about the farm, that would have been, I would have found that, eminently more viable and more fascinating because you would have seen I just never bought into it that this was you know 15 years later but again like, maybe that's oh. maybe again that could be a, a first viewing thing because the significance mm. really is that it's foreshadowed by his conversation with Tilford who wants to buy everything from him give him a million dollars he says we'll make you a millionaire while you're sitting here from one minute to the next and yeah. Daniel says what else would I do with myself the point is that we're jumping to what he did with himself and that was buy a mansion, live in it like some sort of ghost, and be an alcoholic, yeah. you know, and, and a waste. And I think it might have diluted that to just show his progression to that, actually. I think 
just from that line, really, for me, it makes sense that we just see what he's like as a lonely old man with nobody. Yeah, yeah, and that is it is interesting. Don't get me wrong. I was, I think, you, yeah, it comes down to his motivation. I'm still not sure what his motivation is because if his motivation was to become rich, then yeah, he would have taken the deal from Telford. But then his, his motivation was to make his own money. Or was to be was his motivation to be to make it on his own to be successful by his own hand rather than well, he's not. People give I it don't to think him. he's. I don't think he's doing it to be rich. It is power. He, he wants to be the most powerful. It's like somebody who's worth twenty billion dollars. I don't know why they don't all retire, but they keep going. There are those people who just. I mean, if you make a, if I made a hundred million pounds, I. There's no way that I'd keep working. I'd do things that I wanted, like I might write more or I might just travel. But there are mm. those people who, even if there was no money in it, they would still play that game. He likes the game, I think. I think, think he the likes point. the oil game. You think that's his... Well, it's not even oil, really, because he's not even an oil prospector at first. He wants to be the the king. You know, He wants to be the champion. Mm. And, you know, what else? He's, he's, not, gonna, he's not someone who's going to go live on a beach. Mm. He wants to... You know, he says, like he says, if I ever saw that mansion, that big house again from our hometown, I think I'd be sick. You know, yeah. he actually wants to just be the Billy Big Bollocks. Okay, so, know. okay, moving on. So, what was your favourite scene then? I did, I, I mean, what I noted down was anytime he and Eli have the, their two or three big, um, big confrontations, I think the baptism scene was right up there for me. I yeah. really like the final scene. It was the one that. After the film came out, it was most quoted. You know, I drink me, I drink your milkshake, but yeah. I thought it was just really good. But in terms of the significance for that character, I think it's probably going to be him and his brother going out, having a bonfire, camping because it's such a really intimate insight into him really speaking to somebody for the first time. And so my favorite line actually linked to that was, yeah. "I have competition in me. I want no one else to succeed. I hate most people." You know, and it really, when I watched it again, that that was the one that stood out as the most significant scene. Yeah, because that's the bit that has character. You actually see some character because you can't identify it because it doesn't have an because like there's no narrate narration in this. He doesn't narrate what he's doing, so you've got to you've got to deride what deride's not the right word. You've got to div, divine what the character's yeah. motivations are <laughs> in, by his yeah, actions you've got to, and his words. Yeah. Which is interesting because that's asking the audience to figure that out for themselves. But yeah, I was like, I'm left disappointed with this one. I really, I'm genuinely disappointed. <laughs> I really, I was sat. I, you know, when you watch something and someone's built it up for you, and then you watch it, and then you're like, oh no, they're, they're not going to be happy when you tell them that I don't like this because it's like, oh, I don't want to spoil the other people's fun. <laughs> but it could make for one of our most interesting episodes because. It's not that much fun just hearing a couple of guys going, I liked this. Oh, yeah, me too. This is why I liked it. Oh, yeah, me too. Yeah. You know, I think this might be our most interesting episode since Empire Strikes Back on, maybe, that, maybe. on that front. Although, but, uh, it's, with this it's one, I will... Given... Sorry, go on, on. Sorry. No, no, after you. It's given me a certain amount of hope because I feel like a lot of the things you have, uh, problems with you have, you have with it, I do think would be solved by watching it again in a year or two. Maybe. We'll see. Maybe we yeah. should go back to it. Yeah, make a note. Episode make 300. Yeah, we can have a look and see if I uh, if I've changed my mind. I'm, you know, I, you know me. I'm quite open to changing my mind about things when it comes to films. You know, I'll do you a deal. 
in um, I don't know, let's say a year or two's time, I'll rewatch Empire Strikes Back. We'll talk about that, and you rewatch See, There Will Be Blood. I'll quite happily rewatch There Will Be Blood, but I think with Empire, I don't think, I don't think you'll ever like it because no. it's a kids' <laughs> film. Yeah, <laughs> you said it. You said it. Well, that's why you don't like it, and I think the more I ruminated on it, and the more because. I had a feeling when we watched it that you'd be like, oh, I can see why everyone likes it, but it's not for me. And then I didn't expect the vitriol that's come out of your mouth in the last, <laughs> what, three months since you watched it. Um, I have got more and more vitriolic. I think when I've, I first watched the episode, I said, oh, I don't really like it. It's really silly. Every yeah. episode since, I've been like that, that yeah, awfulness. Yeah. And with this, I'm not taking... With this, I think I'm disappointed rather than disliking. Yeah, you, you wanted to like it. Yeah, and because... Yeah. And it's been out for you know twelve years now, so I was aware of it. I've come across it in other bits and pieces. You know, I've seen scenes from. You know, I think I'd seen bits of the uh, baptism scene before over the years, um, and bits of the bowling alley scene. But I just was a. Yeah, I was hoping that those scenes were, because sometimes in isolation, when you when you see part of a scene of a film that you want to watch, you're like, oh well that'll make sense in context and in this they made they did make a little bit of sense but it was everything else around it that was a bit off for me okay um well shall we have a break come back do the yeah. critics corner and the quiz so after the break we're going to have critics corner we're going to find out Hugh's rating and we'll have our quiz Welcome back. Let's hear what the critics said. In fact, there's only one critic for us, Hugh. Who's that critic? Um, was he still alive when this came out? It was. What year did Roger, poor, well, not poor Roger Ebert, he was, what year did Roger Ebert die? I thought he was dead by 2007. No, I don't think so. I'm, I'm Googling it as we speak. Was it 2012? Uh, yeah, 2013, actually. So he had a good five years left, actually. So, yeah. So what, did, so what did Big Rog, come on, what did the Ebertster say about... Uh, there will be blood. I'm guessing he liked it. He liked it. He liked it, but he didn't love it. He gave it three and a half out of five. What we love about Roger Ebert, I think I can speak for his birth, is that he's almost always right. And he's florid, turn of phrase. Yeah, he's, yeah, he's a great writer, isn't he? Clearly, what I'm basically going to do... film critics ever. Exactly. And I'm just going to read out a couple of his paragraphs because I can't... I don't want to summarize. I don't want to paraphrase. So he says, The voice of the oil man sounds made of oil, gristle and syrup. It's deep and reassuring, absolutely sure of itself, and curiously fraudulent. No man who sounds this, this forthright can be other than a liar. His name is Daniel Plainview, and he must have been given the name to himself as a private jerk. For little that he does, he says, it seems. In Paul Thomas Anderson's brutal, driving epic, There Will Be Blood, he begins by trying to wrest, well, I won't say what, from the earth with a pick and shovel, and ends by extracting countless barrels of oil, whose wealth he keeps all for himself. Daniel Day-Lewis makes him a great oversized monster, who hates all men, including therefore himself. And he talks, <laughs> he says, watching the movie is like viewing a natural disaster that you cannot turn away from. By that I do not mean that the movie is bad, any more than it is good. It is a force beyond categories. It has scenes of terror and poignancy, scenes of ruthless chicanery, scenes awesome for their scope, moments echoing with whispers, and an ending that in some that in some particular way, peculiar way, this material demands, because it not, it could not conclude on an appropriate note. There has been nothing appropriate about it. 
Those who hate the ending, and there may be many, might be asked to dictate a better one. Something bittersweet, perhaps, grandly tragic, only madness can supply a termination for this story. And he um, he goes on to say that it's the kind of film that is easily called great. I'm not sure of its greatness. It was filmed in the same area of Texas used by No Country for Old Men, and that is a great film, and a perfect one. But There Will Be Blood is not perfect, and in its imperfections we may see its, reaching, its reach exceeding its grasp, which is not a dishonourable thing. Do you know what? I avoided looking at the critics this week because I wanted to give my own view of it raw and, un, you know, without, without being anchored by better writers and better critics, quite frankly. Um, I wanted to see... Because <laughs> I know that from when I've looked at... When I looked at the critics and I looked at Ebert's review last week with... Um, Boogie Nights, I found that I used some of the things that he said and was like, oh yeah, yeah, I agree with that. I'll, I'll, you know, I can, I can use that. But I knew this week if I, if I kind of said what they, what critics said about it, I, I knew I'd end up kind of maybe regurgitating some of their, their thoughts on the film. It's so easily done, isn't it? Mark Homer mm. says, you know, part of his job is to tell you why you didn't like a film that you thought you did, and I'll often decide what I feel about a film after I've heard what he says about it. So it's clear Roger Ebert was, he appreciated a lot of it, but didn't think it was great. I think maybe you share that view roughly. Um, yeah, I was, yeah, a lot of the things he said about it, I felt, yeah, he's rung quite true there. Was Did you get any critics who liked it immeasurably or disliked it with intensity? No, I, I went for the one. I, I, I like either having somebody who hated it and somebody who loved it or somebody who both. <laughs> So, yeah, yeah I, I really liked that. And, and obviously he's speaking contemporary to the film. What I want to know, Hugh, is uh, your rating. Roger's given it 3.5 out of 5. Hugh, how okay. many bastards in a basket out of 10? <laughs> um, so I'd give it oh, five Moseses. <laughs> <laughs> five out of 10? Blimey. Yeah, at the moment. Yeah, I'd give it five out of ten. Um, not to steal other podcasts' uh, IP here, but I'm gonna for a second. Um, if you've ever listened to Little White Lies um, podcast, uh, Truth and Movies, um, they do like a three-tiered rating system. And oh yes. One, I think I think they basically do how many out of five were you anticipating the film, and then what did you think of the film at the time, and then what did you think after it? Um, so with this. My, my anticipation for it was 5 out of 5. I was really looking forward to watching this, especially after watching Boogie Nights the week before. I think um, I finished editing Boogie Nights and then basically put this straight on afterwards. Uh, you know, I was like, right, I've done that, put that out, I'm going to watch this. And, and then I was looking forward, and then I was left a bit, dis yeah, I was left disappointed. And then straight after it, I was conflicted because I knew that it wasn't going to be a, 10 out of 10 review for myself. I knew that I was going to have this difficult, awkward <laughs> conversation with you about it. Um, and I've had a few, and I've had a few days to reflect on it. And yeah, I still kind of hold that opinion. Seems fair. I mean, you've, you've justified mm. it as much as I don't agree. And I can understand maybe the reasons behind it. I think you've, I think you've laid out a good justification. Would you recommend the film? No. Uh, is there anybody that you would recommend it to? I think Ben would like right, it. Yeah. Certainly he loves it. it who's been on our previous yeah I think he does he yeah and that doesn't surprise me are you ready for a quiz I am 
exceptionally fantastic. All oh, right, well, in wow. that case, let's do a quiz. Guess how many questions I've got for you, Hugh? Um, oh, I don't know. With you, probably about fifty-nine <laughs> because you can't stick to a five. Five. I narrowed it down to seven. <laughs> Again, seven. So what is this the pattern now? You do seven. Yeah, I do five. I'm just forty percent more. Okay. So it's fine. You're just forty. Here's more. a quiz. <laughs> quiz question number one. How many people does Daniel murder? Ooh. Well, I would say two. Can't be more. Yeah, can't be more than two. I mean, he can be. I mean, by health and safety standards, he may be held, uh, pr- you know, responsible in this day and age for the death of H.W.'s uh, father mm-hmm. uh, by uh, corporate manslaughter. But back then, I don't think they had such. One a of the notes I made was, yeah, I "Thank say. God for health and safety," because bloody hell. Um, question two what is the final line of the film final line of the film is I'm done almost I'm I'm finished finished. (laughs) it's like a child (laughs) yeah I'm finished good question three how much does Daniel pay Paul someday for giving him the information about the land to drill there's two figures here Oh, there's two mm. figures. I thought it was 500 Five hundred dollars at first. How much does he tell Eli that he paid Paul? Oh, I don't remember. He then told... I didn't realise this was a two-part yeah. quiz. Um, so there's eight questions. There's sort of eight or ten or, or whatever. <laughs> I don't remember. He says I paid him $10,000 right there and then. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, he lies to him, yeah. doesn't he? Um, yeah. Three of the next four... I think that was the bit I realised that it was two separate characters. <laughs> Although, how bad do you feel for the guy who was originally cast oh, as Eli? Pretty bad. I mean, like, don't get me wrong. Like, I might not have enjoyed this film as much as I wanted to, but there's no denying Paul Dan- Dano. 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 He's not Paul Danan. Yeah, Paul Dano. Dano. Yeah. Isn't there a famous like Z-list celebrity in this country also called pa- Paul? Paul Danan. Yeah, he was on Hollyoaks and then Celebrity Love Island and so on. Horrible man. Uh, um, yeah, Paul... I, for a while, confused those two. It's, it's easily done. <laughs> for me, Paul Dano, I did not like him because I didn't like his character in Eternal Su- in um, Little Miss Sunshine and I didn't like his character here because he's sort of a, he's a bit whiny. I really only properly appreciated how good he is and actually liked him in the film Swiss Army Man, which we are going to do in a future future episode. Well, we're not because we're bollocks. Seen... When did you see it? Uh, oh, well. years, uh, listeners, watch Great watch time. Swiss Army Man. It's really good. Um, question number question number four. I think you'll know this. In what year does the film begin? Eighteen. Very good. Question number five. In what year does the film end? Nineteen twenty-seven. I've put nineteen twenty-seven at least. Um, yeah. Question six. Well, it states it, doesn't it? It states it for um, the wedding. And then we assume that he's basically yes. gone from the wedding to his dad. But anyway, mm. question six. This is a tricky one, actually. By what derisory name does Daniel refer to HW's interpreter? Oh, nips. <laughs> <laughs> Says your your little dog, woof, 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 woof. Refers to him as his, refers to him as his little, little dog. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Yeah. Question seven. Possibly the easiest of the lot, actually. Um, What is Daniel originally mining for? Uh, Gold. Mm. Well, gold and silver. silver. He's going for silver and then he sells it to the gold and silver 
uh, company or whatever. So you did really well Can on the quiz. I think you basically got them all right. What's that? Can you remember how much he? Um... Oh, I was going to sells the silver to them for. I was going to ask you that actually, was... and then I forgot to write it down. Did you? Did you know? Uh, I think it was four hundred and twenty-three dollars. That's pretty good. Because I knew it might come up on the quiz, so I was like, oh, I <laughs> try and memorize that. And yeah. it was four hundred and twenty something. So you've done well on the quiz. Uh, we've wrapped up. There will be blood. I, I'm disappointed that you didn't love it, but I'm still hopeful that you will one day. We've stuck, yeah, perhaps. So, Hugh, what are we going to watch next week? So, next week, uh, we're going to change the tone slightly <laughs> and look at another director's sort of way that they look at, you know, you know, a director with a clear voice and a clear style. Um, we're going to look at the Taiko YTT film Hunt for the Wilder People, starring Sam Neill uh, and uh, the kid from uh, Deadpool 2, if you've seen <laughs> that. Uh, he's also in that. Uh, let me see what his name was. It is, because I've forgotten, Julian Dennison, right. apparently. But yeah, that's um, it's a it's a good film. It's good fun. Uh, yeah, I think you'll hopefully you'll enjoy well, it. And also, it ties in with the fact that Taika Waititi's recently just film, released a film called Jojo Rabbit. Uh, well, don't tell so, the listeners our marketing strategy. They were just going to drop it when uh, when Taika Waititi's hot. Don't you know? Don't don't let them behind the curtain on that. I mean, if I mean that's a, usually a good way you market things is to tie it in with things that have come out recently. But subtly, so they go, subtly. Oh, no, what else? This anyway, I don't know anything about Hunt for the Wilder People at all. Subtlety. I, I've yeah. never, I've don't know anything about it. I think I've seen the poster. Looks kind of wacky mm. comedy. It's Taika Waititi, so it's going to be funny. Hopefully, I'm looking forward to seeing it. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing it. Yeah, it should be good fun. Okay then. Well, uh, we'll see. We will, Hugh. If our listeners want to get in touch and complain about you, how can they do it? Well, so, if they want to uh, get in touch with us uh, via an, an electronic mail, uh, they can do. Uh, they can do that at pleasewatchthis.pod at gmail. Oh, I was hoping for some sort, uh, of, uh, some sort of metaphor uh, joke. You've, just, you've let me down. I mean, I, I could have done one, but, you know, if I do them every week... Um, They're less um, special. Um, yeah, I, they've got to. They've got to really. They've got to really come. To I think. Themselves. I think this film's just not inspired <laughs> you. That's what it must be. So, what's the tell me the email Maybe. address again? Uh, it's please watch this. Dot pod at gmail com. If you want to get with us in touch with us on Twitter, you can. Uh, it might be useful to know that we are at please watch pod. If you want to find us on Facebook, we have a page called please watch this, which you can also find by typing in at please watch pod. We do. Oh, we've got correspondence. We had some correspondence. Somebody calling themselves Saffroni or Saffron uh, really wants us to watch um, Fifty Shades of Grey, and uh, I don't want to. So Was this to. a real? E- is this a real email? Because you know, again, behind the curtain, I thought that might have been somebody you knew messing. <laughs> Somehow I let this person <laughs> around my children, my child. <laughs> uh, so Saffron, I hate to say it, but we're not going to watch. Uh, Fifty Shades of Grey. Is that? I thought it was your last. To be honest, I thought she'd picked a really strange. Um, by the way, for those non-Yorkshire listeners, <laughs> your last means uh, your girlfriend. Or in this case, fiance. In this part of the yeah. world. No, case, she hasn't so. chosen a weird film, but she's chosen a weird friend who wants us to watch a weird film. Sorry, Saffron, we're not going to watch it. Okay, <laughs> apologies. I've actually seen it. 
Um, so have I. So have you so seen, have I. You seen so it? There, there you go. go. I really wanted to watch it with Sorry, you. Sorry, Saffron. Ruined. Sorry, Saffron. There's two other yeah. films, though. Have you seen the other two? Um, I've seen bits of the third one. Maybe, maybe when we run out of films. We're not gonna. Thanks, guys. I mean, I've, I've, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm 31 now. I mean, you know, statistically, I'll only live another like 40 years. So, I mean, yeah, I don't think there's enough time That's to, true. to get around to. There's it, only so honest. many weeks in a life. Too many. <laughs> exactly. There's so many, only so many good films you can watch. But that's not one of them. Cool. Yeah. Well, we've we've <laughs> more than outstayed our welcome, Hugh. It's been fun chatting to you, even though I feel like our friendship is forever jeopardised. Well, I mean, if it's not over by now after you insulted uh, Empire and I just liked this, um, I mean, yeah, maybe this will. Maybe this is the last episode. <laughs> we made it to the big one. Oh, um, listeners, yeah, thank you for your patronage. We love you. We will talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.